shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello, and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is my co-host, William Thrasher. I enter the arena. Johnny Cage. A handful of leaky people on a leaky boat are going to save the world. Exactly. (laughs) We are talking about Mortal Kombat, the uh, original live-action film, released in 95. Uh, Before we start on that, I want to point out the theme song is written and... For not the theme song for Mortal Kombat, theme song for Sequel Cast 2, is uh, <laughs> written and performed by Mark with the C. Check out his music, markwiththec.com, and we're a member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Uh, check out other great film and TV podcasts at battleshippretension.com, and we're also on Stitcher. Check that out at stitcher.com. So, there you go. Yeah, Mortal Kombat. This came out in 95. Based on the video game, uh, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, who some listeners might know him better for doing. Um, he wrote all of the Resident Evil live-action films and directed four of them. He also wrote and directed the first Alien vs. Predator film. Uh, produced by Lawrence Kasanoff, written by Kevin Droney, based on the video game by Ed Boon and John Tobias from Midway Games. Starring Christopher Lambert, Robin Shu, Kiri Hiroyuki Tagawa, Lyndon Ashby, Bridget Wilson, and Talisa Soto. Music by George S. Clinton, no related to the former president. Cinematography by John R. Leonetti. And uh, off a budget of $18 million worldwide, this made $122 million, which means it made more money than the live-action Street Fighter movie. Uh, quite a bit more money. Yes. And it costs less as well. Because uh, <laughs> less, uh, less known people in the cast. So yeah, Mortal and also Kombat. this is just an efficient movie, but we'll talk about that. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I think before talking about the movie, I, I just want to say, were you familiar with the the video game at all? Because I'm looking here, and uh, the original one came out in the arcade in '92. This movie didn't come out until '95. So by the time this movie was out, you already had Mortal Kombat one, two, and three have been out in the arcades, and um. You know, possibly on home systems. Uh, yeah, I was a, I was a, a at the time a, a, a pretty decent fan of Mortal Kombat. I did like it more than Street Fighter. Put a lot of time into uh, Mortal Kombat One and Two in the arcades. A hell of a lot of time into Mortal Kombat Two on uh, the Super Nintendo. Yeah, you know, I had Mortal Kombat One for the Super Nintendo, which was famously the uh, censored version. Um, <laughs> It should be mentioned, uh, so Mortal Kombat, like Street Fighter, is a video game where it's one-on-one combat. You can play against the computer or against someone else. And um, the difference is uh, Street Fighter had more of like an anime look. And with Mortal Kombat, um, at least in the early games, what they did with the graphics is they had actors do different moves, film them against a blue screen, and then capture it frame by frame and made it so it, it looks sort of like live-action people fighting each other, although it was pretty uh, uh, pixelated. 
it, it was a strange kind of eerie realism that worked with the technology at the time. And then you just add that with like some of the gruesome death animations. It, it, it made the game so much better. Oh, yeah, how could I forget that? Of course, yeah, at the end of uh, uh, usually like a three-round match, you um, you know, best two out of three, uh, it's a fatality, and, and your opponent is sort of in a hypnotic state, standing up, waving around. And if you know the, the moves to, to punch in, and a lot of them are quite difficult to do, uh, your character will do a, you know, a really violent animation to kill the other guy off, and then they have a different one for each character um in later games you know they've they've made those more complicated but let's let's move on to the movie but it should be saying (laughs) they're still making mortal Kombat games today i mean this franchise has been running strong for 25 years now It, it is now an institution yes absolutely an institution um i first saw this movie in the theater so did I. I saw it three times in the theater. Um, I really liked it. You know, that the movie was PG-13 was was controversial, I think, at the time. But they had to to get the teenage boy audience. Um, I think if you were doing it now, you could probably make it rated R and get away with it. But Well, it doesn't, it doesn't have the cartoonish level of over-the-top violence that you would expect from the video game. But they do capture the game's spirit pretty well. I, I think so, and, and the character designs and, and so forth. Um, it, you know, people get impaled in this movie. People explode. It's not like <laughs> they, they avoided all violent acts. I, I remember a scene in the Street Fighter movie where um, these bad guys take out guns and pull the trigger and they shoot Nerf balls at them. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's very... Uh, Right. I think the tone is correct. Um, interesting that the movie poster is doesn't you know brag about uh, the actors. It's just the the game's logo, but sort of like a a bronze looking version of it with a glowing red eye. Mm, yes. So uh, let me go over a, a high level of the plot, and then we'll discuss the characters and discuss the film as we do. So Mortal Kombat is uh, about a a fighting tournament. And we meet sort of a motley group of different characters. Some are good guys, some are bad guys. But they all end up on this elaborate um, Chinese boat on the docks. And they get on it and they go to a special island where Shane Sun is in charge of a, of a tournament where people fight Manuel Mano. And if you lose a battle, Shane Soon takes the soul, which, you know, kills the competitor. And people don't seem to have a problem with this, which I thought was somewhat surprising. <laughs> well, but, well, I figure the people of Outworld are used to it by now. I, I get, yeah, in Outworld they're used to it, but... I guess they, we should um, explain what Outworld is. <laughs> sure, I mean, yeah, so there's Earth, and I'm trying to give a, a, a short summary of the plot for people that might not have seen the film. There's Earth, which is where most of the characters are from. Then there's Outworld, which is a different dimension. And if um, Outworld wins the Mortal Kombat ten consecutive times, the Emperor Shao Kahn, who we don't see in the film until the very end, will be able to conquer Earth. The gateways will be thrown wide, and Earth will become another uh, vassal state sucked into Outworld. 
And I believe over the years, Outworld has won this uh, nine times, so this is like the tenth time, right? Yes, and the, and the tournament only happens once a generation, so presumably, like, this has been going on, like, f it's like a 500-year winning streak. Yep, and, um, and so they, they a lot of different matches are fought between characters, some as part of the tournament, some outside the tournament. And ultimately, the, the hero is uh, Liu Kane, who's a, a Shaolin monk, who his um, his brother was murdered by Shane Soon, who's the guy running the tournament. But he, he is reminded, you know, he shouldn't just be in the tournament just for vengeance. And well, every, every character has a lesson to learn, which is hammered home in a scene uh, shortly before the final act. Right. And not I like that not everyone is like a pure good guy you have some characters that are just assholes slash comic relief you have some characters we don't know much about um it doesn't follow the plot of the game that closely i mean there's some well the, the game doesn't have a plot you just well, fight no, your way right. up an escalating sure. series of tournaments in outworld that's it the only thing yeah if you beat the game you get three sentences and some pictures about what happened with the winner uh, you know, canonically, Liu Kane is the winner of the first game. And um, <coughs> this uh, film also has a lot of um, techno music from a lot of um, different artists. The soundtrack is amazing. Yep, including a, a reworked piece by a porn star Tracy Lords of her solo album. <laughs> so here we go. Yeah, Mortal Kombat. That's the basic plot, if that made any sense. I hope it did. Let's go into some of the cast. Uh, you know, the well-known member of the cast that I was familiar with, which was Christopher Lambert of the Highlander films, plays the Thunder God Raiden in a ridiculous wig. And he, he sort of mumbles and whispers his way through a performance. Well, it works, though, because the Christopher Lambert brooding whisper does kind of have this quiet before the storm thing. Like, it, it, it works as like a character that's not really human. It's a bit otherworldly. He he looks like he does in the game, although in the game Raiden looks Asian. But unlike you know certain movies like Ghost in the Shell, uh, they they have a lot of Asian actors in this, which is nice. You have um, Robin Shu plays Liu Kane. I had not seen him in anything before this, but New Line Cinema certainly used him in a lot of uh, other movies, including the Chris Farley uh, comedy Beverly Hills Ninja. Yeah, if, if if they had a stable of actors, he was in it. And I, he he looks just like the guy from the game. I think he does yeah. he does pretty good. He he takes the role. I think he has sort of a more serious role compared to some of the of the other uh, characters. Well, I mean, he has the hero arc. Mm-hmm. Um. Also, we have. As the bad guy, I think my favorite performance in the film, Kiri Hiroyuki Tagawa as Shane Sun. He he gets this perfect mix of menace and ham in his performance. I love it. He says at the time during the movie, nobody wanted to talk to him because everyone was scared of him. He, he he looks like he looks like the guy in the martial arts movie who doesn't move, but the moment he moves, somebody dies, and that seems to be how he looks all the time, whether he's whether he's on set or off. And he clearly has um, 
worked out a lot. You know, he's in shape. He gets to do a fight towards the end, which is pretty neat. And he, I mean, yeah, just, just the extreme faces he make and his, his gravelly voice. Um, I, I've seen this actor. You see him pop up in a lot of different things. He's in the um, Sean Connery, Michael Crichton movie, Rising Sun. Comes to mind. There's a pretty big part in that one. Uh, next is uh, Lyndon Ashby, who plays Johnny Cage. Who I every... think he... Yeah, go on. I was saying, every... Every movie just needs an American asshole, and he does it so well. But he's still likable. There's a charming rogue quality about him. Yeah, allegedly they were trying to cast Jean-Claude Van Damme as Johnny Cage. Huh. Which I think is strange, because he played Guile in the Street Fighter movie. Um, well, I mean, that's probably... They were, I'm sure they were scheduling conflicts because of that, but, like, he... I don't... I feel like that's just a way to get another big-name martial arts actor into the movie. I don't think he'd really fit the part. Yep. Um, as Sonya Blade, you have Bridget Wilson, who I recognize from Billy Madison. Oh, um, really? Originally cast in the role, this is sort of interesting, is Cameron Diaz. But she had an injury in training and uh, she couldn't play the part. <laughs> also, um, Sharon Stone, I heard, was in the running to play this part. Interesting. And uh, I find Sonya a bit flat. I mean, I think it's cool that she does a lot of the action in the beginning, but towards the end, she's in this ridiculous, <laughs> like, like caveman, cavewoman dress with this teased out hair. Well, and... yeah, that that's the one thing. That's actually the one thing that I don't like about this movie uh, is that. You know, we, we see her as a special forces operative early on. We see that she's a competent leader, a competent fighter. She can take care of herself. She gets some great victories. But when Sang Shung kidnaps her to challenge her for the tournament, it's as if she forgets that she knows how to fight. Uh, and it's it's very it's just very unsatisfying the way she's pulled into that. That and the fact that she she had she had that makeover uh after the kidnapping, I can only assume every evil overlord has a stylist on a retainer so that any time they, they abduct a woman, they can give them a makeover, which everyone seems to just let happen to them, which it's I guess it's a free makeover, so you would be a fool to turn that down. I know I wouldn't. Uh, in sort of a smaller part, we have Talisa Soto as Katana, who's a character from the second video game. Um, you know, she, she comes across as, as smart, kind of flirty with Liu Kang, but pretty, um, pretty subtle. They don't really have her in, in fight scenes and she doesn't look much well, she, like she does in the second game. She, she plays more of a mentor role. Right. Yeah. And, and she's good. I'm not sure that character is really needed because you have so many characters in this movie. Um, I'm looking. Who else in the cast stands out for you? I think Trevor Goddard as Kano is quite good. Yeah, and I love that they kept his cybernetic eye, which was a trait from from the first Mortal Kombat game, which is something that I love about this movie. Uh, it doesn't shy away from its source material. Uh, it doesn't just give right. him a gnarly eye patch. It lets him have all of his traits from the game, which includes a big red cybernetic eyeball that's welded onto his face. You know, like from the game, you also have Scorpion and Sub-Zero um, who are just in, in fight scenes. They're not given much as far as character work. 
Uh, Reptile is also in there, who is a secret character in the first game and is a playable character in the second game. And how could we not, how could we forget Goro, who looks sort of like a ninja turtle with four arms? It's, it's, um, it, it looks, you know, in the game, it, the, the character looks more lumpy and I don't know. I think the way Goro looks is pretty weird. Well, I think partly it's 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 an uncanny valley thing because in in the uh, in, in the first game, Goro was the character to beat. Uh, he he was just this the horrible forearmed monstrosity. Uh, rewatching this movie for the sequel cast too, I had completely forgotten how much Goro is in this movie. They don't shy away from showing him at all once they get into Outworld. He's on camera a lot. There's a lot of sustained shots. He gets to right. deliver speeches, and yep. I am. I am impressed with the Goro effects. They're, they're still dated, but everything, this whole movie has this wonderful, subtle, artificial gloss to it, and that makes the hokiness of the Goro special effect that that much more charming and endearing. A, uh, a character uh, from the games that's also in this is Jax, but he's very briefly, he's Sonya's partner in the Special Forces. Yeah, Jax was my favorite character in, in Street Fighter 2, and I'd forgotten that he makes an appearance in this film. Right, and you know he doesn't have the metal arms. That He's sort of a more major character in uh, the sequel that we'll talk about next week, Mortal Kombat Annihilation. So we, we sort of gave a broad overview of the plot. We talked about the, uh, the characters. Let's talk about the movie itself. Now, now you had mentioned that you had quite the fun time off mic uh, watching this movie. And, and why is that? Did you think it would be cheesy going back to it? I, I was worried that it I was worried that it would be because I said I saw this in the theaters uh, uh, a weekend or two after it came out uh, with my uh, younger brother. And we had a great time. Uh, but I don't think I've ever seen the movie all the way through since then. I've only like ever caught mm. like clips on late night cable. So so going into it, I was really worried this was going to be another thing from my childhood that just doesn't hold up to my uh, adult, uh, mostly adult eyes. But I really enjoyed it. The movie, the movie was just fun. It moves briskly. There is, there is just enough uh, character development that I that I give a damn about who's fighting, uh, e- even if what they're fighting for is kind of big and cosmic, trying to stop Outworld from consuming the Earth. Yeah, I think what I like about it, the running time is only one hundred one minutes, and you look at modern um you know blockbuster tentpole movies and they're like two hours two hours and a half in the case of like transformers there's usually like three hours and and they seem to it feels like you can cut at least 30 minutes out of all those movies um they sort of overstay their welcome but but this mortal Kombat, it it knows what it wants to do it it rips liberally off of enter the dragon but so did the original video game yeah it's not shy about its influences no and I mean, that's one thing about... How do you feel about the director, Paul W.S. Anderson? Have you seen a lot of his other work? No, no, I haven't. I saw, I think it was Resident Evil 2, and I just I just was not into it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I yeah. really haven't seen much else of what... I haven't seen any of the Aliens vs. Predators movies, so the only impression I have from him is from this film. Oh, did you not see Event Horizon? No, I sorry, I oh. did. I enjoy Event Horizon. Yeah, Event, Event Horizon I thought was pretty good. That's what he made right after Mortal Kombat because he turned down the sequel to make that. Yeah, I, um, I, I rewatched that about uh, I think 
two weeks before we we started sequel cast two and that's another movie that for the most part holds up i mean that's a better highlander in space movie than highlander four or not highlander shit a hellraiser haunted house <laughs> hellraiser yes hellraiser although hellraiser versus highlander why not i don't know i mean um I, I've seen a lot of uh, this guy's directorial work. I was really amused by Pompeii, which is a not very great, uh, but but sort of like unintentionally campy sort of romance action film set uh, right before the Pompeii explosion. And you have um, Kiefer Sutherland plays a bad guy who does a lot of screaming and this sort of indeterminate accent. He manages to keep his budgets low, and they, his movies tend to make money most, most of the time. I did not really care for his 2008 Death Race film mm. uh, remake. But, um, yeah, I mean, he made six Resident Evil movies, for Christ's sake. So, Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat. I, I think uh, the beginning does a good job at juggling a lot of different characters, and it's sort of a thankless task. Because you, you start off... With that, you have to get the audience invested, but you have to keep them moving to get them on the boat, which is sort of the the big sort of thing that kicks the plot off. Well, this movie hits hard right out of the gate because the moment we see the first frame of the New Line Cinema logo assembling itself, we get Mortal Kombat, and that awesome theme music starts blasting. Oh, that opening track is great. I think there's like two different versions on the CD one of which uses audio clips of dialogue from the movie. <laughs> but, you know, it goes to all the characters. Raiden, Johnny Cage. I mean, the, uh, the, mer- yeah, the merchandising from Mortal Kombat was so crazy that it had a CD of original music um, while the, the game was still, the original game was still in arcades. You had comic books. You had a CG, uh, one-hour direct-to-video movie. You had, um, oh, what else? You know, eventually you would get an animated series with Mortal Kombat Defenders of the Realm. You got a live-action series called a Mortal Kombat something or other. Um, uh, that was was, uh, that was Mortal Kombat Conquest, I think. Conquest, yeah, that was on TNT. And, uh, I mean, yeah, so it's it managed to keep its place in popular culture. In the uh, TV show Undeclared, they scored a sort of a fight scene to Mortal Kombat out of nowhere where two characters are chasing <laughs> each other on golf court, uh, golf carts, which is pretty good. And uh, Mortal Kombat, you you look at the, the movie and you get hit right up front with the death of Liu Kang's brother. It's not gory, but it's certainly a, the, the motivator for the main character, Liu Kang. It's what drives it's, him in the film. You you don't expect it, but that's one of the one of the things I like about this movie. You know, it is influenced by a lot of martial arts movies, so it is structured and paced like a lot of classic martial arts films. Uh, and one of the one of the classic character motivations is vengeance, and so we 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 get we get that brutal murder right off the bat, so that we understand what drives uh, Liu Kang starting out. Uh, the uh, oh, the other thing I like about Luke Kang, so he is referred to multiple times as the Chosen One, and he in fact is the Chosen One. Uh, and like all Chosen Ones, uh, he must reject the call to action before taking up the call to action. And I love that all that's happened before the movie. <laughs> right, and I like the introduct the intro scenes between him, 
the the sort of sensei uh, in charge of all the Shaolin stuff. Oh, his grandfather, Raiden. yes. Yeah, his grandfather and with Raiden. I think that's a very good introduction of all three of the, you know, of, of Raiden and how he thinks he's just a bum and he gets into a fight with him and you see lightning and all this stuff. It just gives it, it gives that part of the movie a certain flavor. And then we go to something where you think it's a fight scene, but oh, it's really a movie being shot featuring Johnny Cage. Which which is which is rather nice, and it, and it also sets up something for later in the film where where the illusion <laughs> of the fight scene is broken when he punches a guy who doesn't fall over, and he like whispers, "This is when you fall down," and then the guy does a horrible pratfall, and uh, you know then we zoom out and you know see the director and the sound crew and whatnot, and what I realize is that the the director is is clearly modeled on Steven Spielberg, but as originally intended, that was a cameo written for Steven Spielberg, but he couldn't make it due to uh, due to scheduling conflicts. Right. I mean, Spielberg would later do a similar would uh, would actually do a cameo that was sort of the same idea in the uh, beginning sequence to Austin Powers Gold Member. Oh yes. So uh, what could have been? Yes, and uh, we in the introduction we also get. Sonya Blade, who's uh, in Special Forces with her partner Jax, and she's really gunning to get um, Kano, who's this Australian crime lord who killed her former partner, I believe. Yeah, which, which again, a, a lesser film would show her partner having a grisly death and her swearing revenge. All that's already happened, so we can just dive straight into the story. Yeah, there's a, a screenwriting uh, tip it says, start your scenes as late as possible and end them as soon as possible. And uh, the, the beginning of this film, I think, at least takes that to heart. Because well, it also, you want... it, it shows a, a certain amount of trust in the audience that I often mm-hmm. don't see in films. I mean, it, it, the, the film, right off the bat, the film is saying, this is a martial arts movie. You know how martial arts movies work. Let's enjoy. Yeah, and it's not like in the beginning we get a one-on-one fight right off the bat. It still takes a, a little bit of time before we get there, but... Yeah, the movie has good rising action. Mm-hmm. You get to know these characters before you get to see them beat each other up, which um, yeah, adds a lot of flavor to the setting. Uh, what do you think about all the scenes on the boat? Over, overall, they're they're brief, but I, I like the boat. It's, it's nice and creepy. Uh... The thing that struck me is that uh, early on is that uh, Sonya Blade sneaks onto the boat, whereas everyone else has been uh, directly invited. And there's a scene where she goes below decks to look for Kano, and below decks is a reproduction of one of the arenas for Mortal Kombat. Oh, really? Which uh, which one? I don't remember the name of the arena, but it's like this this wooden this like wooden chamber with chains everywhere. Oh, I, that might be. Um... Goro's dungeon, maybe might be. I mean, we don't get we don't get much of a, a fight scene in there, but I like sure. again that the movie wears its influences on its sleeve. I liked that it, it recreated one of the arenas for a set piece, and it's nice. You you get a scene where Shane Sun is about he summons I think a scorpion or Sub Zero to fight some of the good guys in the bowels of the ship, and then Raiden comes in and he's like uh uh uh. And you get a sort of conflict between Raiden and Shane Sun saying you can't have people fight before the tournament begins outside of the, the grounds of the island. Right. It's a, it's a nice bit of business because, you know, this, if you were to do this movie today, 
you might spend a whole movie talking about Outworld and why they want to set up Mortal Kombat and all this stuff. And this movie basically says, that really doesn't matter. We're going to get you to an island. We're going to have people fight. This thing is called Mortal Kombat. We're going to set it up and give you some context, but no more than we need. And as you said, it trusts the audience. And we get uh, and we get some some comedy mostly from Johnny Cage when the when the boat finally arrives in Outworld and he's got he's got all of his luggage. Yep. Which is a nice running gag because there's a montage of them you know getting to the the palace on the island. You know, we see them walking along the beach through a wasteland up a mountain, and in each scene of the montage, he's carrying less and less luggage. <laughs> it's a it's a good touch it's also neat once we um get to the island we see there's a bunch of these flunkies that don't have shirts on but they wear these red bandanas and they look like these people in the background of some of the levels of the video game yes and the the one thing I don't because they 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 all sit down for like a, a a nice little banquet, but then of course there's a you know there's got to be some showmanship. So the fighters come in and flip the tables over to clear the floor so they can fight. Someone put a lot of time and care into those meals. I'm I'm upset that so much food was wasted. I know that's a that's a weird thing, but like I, I hate it when good looking food is just thrown around on the floor and not eaten. So what do we think about the um? The special effects in this film. Well, as, as I said before, I mean they they are they are dated, and yet I feel like it works. It works for the movie because the movie has that layer of, of artificiality to it. Uh, so the, the effects look in sync with that artificiality, and it makes it look more like a, a video game. And I think with the exception mm. with the exception of the big ice force field. Uh, and that uh, Sub-Zero makes and some of the reptile uh, special effects. Uh, most of the special effects don't overstay their welcome or, or hit you over the head. Yeah, the reptile effect I wasn't a big um, big fan of. I just don't think, at least at the budget this movie was made, you had the technology at the time to make a creature of that sort move convincingly or even have enough detail with the texture. But the... Um, the, the fire and ice effects work well enough. I, I think the spear coming out of Scorpion's hand is a neat effect. Yeah, that worked. That works pretty well. And I like because in the game, it's pretty much like a hook on a chain that he flings at you. I I like the weird alienness of it being a creature that lives in its arm with its own, apparently its own will and its in its own teeth. But it. It is, a, it is a travesty that Reptile doesn't look better when they want to show him as an actual reptile. And keep in mind, this was two years after Jurassic Park. We had figured out how to make repti- CGI reptiles look good on screen. Yeah, but this does not have the budget. This does not have industrial light and magic doing the effects. Very, very true. But I feel like I feel like it's if they were so married to the idea of of showing a lot of reptile in this alien dinosaur form, they should have found ways to shoot around that to make it uh, more convincing. And you could have taken reptile out of this movie. I don't think anyone would have noticed. There, you know, there's plenty else going on. Well, you, in, it's it's it's, it's funny you mention that because reptile's big fight scene comes right before the climax. Uh, with uh, Shang Tsung, 
And in a lot of ways, I feel it would be much more appropriate if Goro was the adversary that was fought in that scene and not Reptile. Right. Goro, I, mentioned, I feel, is yeah. defeated a little too early. He is. Um, before we get into that, uh, you know, I mentioned Enter the Dragon. You know, specifically, there's the first real fight scene in the tournament where they fight on the beach in a circular oh, yeah. arena. And the way that is is very similar to the first scene in Enter the Dragon where a um, Bruce Lee is fighting against a bigger fella on the island, and it's it's just shot in a very similar way. Um, I do like the early fight scene between Sonya Blade and Kano. Yeah, because... I like that. I like that we get to see her her take her vengeance, and also it's just a good fight scene. Both of the beach fight scenes. Uh... I enjoy it's it's low stakes, but there's still action. Uh, it does move the story forward. Um, but also something I noticed about the fights throughout this film, there are a lot of cuts in these fight scenes more than I would prefer in a martial arts movie, but not nearly as many as we see today. It's the, the, the film, the director of photography is and the editor is willing to show you bits and pieces of the real fight. They're not excessively cutting around punches and kicks. They're not doing a lot of cr- too much crazy camera showmanship. So you get to see more real fight choreography in those scenes than you do today. I mean, something you, you do see is in a few of the fight scenes, they'll cut to an angle where the, the person is punching directly at the camera. There are a few of those. Which is a bit dopey looking but it's cut quick enough where you don't notice they tend to go for wider shots which is a smart way to do it and uh, you, you do have some slow motion uh, in, in some of the scenes but it, at least you can tell what's going on in the fight you can tell who's fighting who it's it's not um not cut to hell where you can't really tell what's going on and uh, in that they film in, in real locations or mostly real locations is is pretty neat i, I really like the scene where Johnny Cage fights Scorpion. Yeah, that's a neat fight that escalates. So the first half of that fight, it's in this interesting outdoor location. That was a rubber tree plantation. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is why, you know, all, all the trees are, are nice and orderly, but they very rarely record those trees head on. Everything is, an, is at an angle, which makes it look like you're in this kind of weird kaleidoscopic forest. Right. Although, and did then you catch the on, blooper in that scene? I did not. There is a delivery truck that drives through the background of the scene in the uh, left-hand uh, side of the screen. Huh, okay. It, it's real yeah, I mean, quick, and it's in the background, yeah. but it's there. I mean, but the, the second part of the fight is what I thought was more interesting, where he gets sucked into, uh, presumably, the outworld, where it's this sort of demonic, hellish scape with all these bones and things at diagonal angles and uh oh those those bamboo platforms that they fight on with the cobwebs. right that they keep on collapsing and the fight in- intensifies and the way scorpion uh dies with him you know the head exploding and bleeding orange everywhere after being all cut up by that razor shield and there's also a reference to johnny cage's uh, friendship move from mortal kombat 2 where he leaves a photograph that says to my best fan 
John, signed Johnny Cage. Yeah, that signed was that was a nice a nice uh, capper to that scene. Yeah, that that scene's really cool. Uh, the another bit of trivia. This was I saw this on a, a, a I think it was one back in the day when this movie came out. There were a lot of shows on cable just about how special effects were done, and there was one that that featured a lot of stuff uh, from from this movie. And that scene that was a that was an airplane hangar and. They built all those platforms because those platforms c- couldn't uh, bear their own weight. Everything is hanging from the ceiling and not mm. rising up from the ground. Interesting. But yeah, that 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 is, but th- that fight scene is when the movie completely embraces the way the video game works from uh, from Scorpion's get over here move to his fire breathing attack to his flaming skull head to his grotesque death when he's all cut up and then explodes. You mentioned the the Guerrero fight scene is a bit anticlimactic, and I have to agree with you. Like the build up is interesting; it's done on a cliff. And you're well, seeing well, Goro starts, defeat. Well, it starts. I mean, we've seen, we've seen Goro kill a few people by this by this point right. in the movie after giving a lot of evil speeches and, and interacting with people, which I love. So, yeah. So Johnny Cage decides, well, you know what? I'll just challenge Goro directly and, and uh, take him out. And I I love his his low cunning because the very the very the moment the fight begins. He just does, Johnny Cage just does the splits, so he falls down to the ground, and he's at eye level with Goro's crotch, and just sucker punches Goro's crotch. That's one of the moves from the game. Yes, and then and then runs off, and uh, Goro gets to his feet and chases him. Yeah, but that leads to the cliffside fight scene, which, uh, it's, it, admittedly, when you see, when you see the wide shot uh, of them fighting, you don't see much of that wide shot. You see just enough of the wide shot to be impressed by it, but then they cut away from it, which is probably for, for the best. I guess it, it, in a lot of ways it's a blessing that this fight scene is as short as it is, because in the long run, I think it would start to show the weaknesses in the Goro animatronics. Right. But yeah, but you know, Goro... Uh, Goro swings too hard, falls over. Uh, Johnny Cage, uh, you know, does a, one of his swinging acrobatic kicks. Goro falls off the side, is hanging, uh, hanging by his arm, uh, or by one hand over this vast, you know, vast drop. And we get that callback. This is where you fall down. Hand slips, and down he goes. And you see him fall down into sort of the the thundering clouds below, which is a neat yeah. shot. And yeah, it's, uh, but I think, you know, you really get the emotional stakes when you get to that final fight between Liu Kang and Shane Sun. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot at stake there. We get reminded of his brother when Liu Kang, or not when, when uh, Shang Tsung, uh, shapeshifts into, uh, into Liu Kang's, uh, brother to deceive him. It's just, it's just a good, it's just a good fight. And I love watching the tide, uh, slowly turn between those two. There's a reference to the video game and that that final fight is above a pit of spikes. And there's a famous yep. level called the pit from the game. Although that the floor of the final arena in the movie is the Mortal Kombat logo is a little cheesy, but it's a cool design. Like, I don't know. It's I, f- I think it works. I don't think that's that's cheesy at all. The only thing 
that I, I don't like about it is that when the spikes rise out of the floor, the spikes are only in the positive space of the logo design. There's no spikes in the, in the negative space, which at first looks cool, but removes a lot of the threat of the spikes. If you're going to yeah. have a spiked floor, you can't have huge patches without spikes. And what's a bit weird about uh, the fight scene is in the video game, Shane Sun, he can change into any other character in the middle of the fights. Yeah, it actually, because we see him, you know, uh, we see him take the soul of one of the other Mortal Kombat uh, fighters er earlier on. I, th I feel like they, sh they should have taken advantage of that. They probably should have earlier in the movie had two of the crazier Mortal Kombat fighters get defeated so he could absorb their souls so he could turn into them in this fight scene. But we only ever see him turn into Liu Kang's brother, unfortunately. Right. It's um, That would have added a bit more to the fight, but it, it's still an interesting scene. And at the end, it seems like the happy ending. We get this really, uh, probably my favorite piece of music in the film. I think it's called On and On, perhaps. And, uh, or is that Halcyon and On? Or Halcyon and On, that's it, yep. And uh, we think it's a happy ending, but all of a sudden, uh, we get a, a somewhat clumsy shot of the Emperor... Where the emperor, a giant of the emperor, explodes out of the temple where Liu Kang was trained. Uh, and, you know, it's like, oh, foolish mortals, I will take your soul. They all get into their fighting stances. Uh, the theme song reprises, and we go through the credits. Yep. It's, uh, you know, it's about as blatant as a tease for a sequel as you can get. It's, it's not even a tease. It's punching you in the face with the promise of a sequel, which which is going to make the pitch a sequel segment that much more difficult because it's very rare that we watch a movie that has such blatant sequel set up in it. But the fact that we get exactly the sequel that this end scene promises. Right. It, it's a bit of a surprise. Um, but yeah, that that's Mortal Kombat. Uh, would you give it sequel yes or sequel no? I'm going to give it sequel. Yes, I had a lot of a lot of fun with it. I didn't enjoy it as much as I did when I saw it when I was 14, but I I enjoyed it a lot. It is an uncomplicated uh, martial arts film with some delightfully crazy fight sequences uh, and just enough just enough character development that you give a damn about what's going on on screen. Right. Uh, I give it sequel yes as well. I think it, it holds up surprisingly well, for, especially for a video game movie made at this time. Um, everyone seems to take their role in the film seriously enough. It doesn't have too much dialogue. It's more focused on action. The, you have some good scenes in there. Well, no and, one uh, pauses and then says, this is like something out of a video game. Yeah, right, which you would see in stuff all over the place. Um, you still see it in some video game movies. Oh, yeah. As the poster for Dungeons and Dragons said, this ain't no game. Wait, that was the Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> it could be two things. Yeah. And that had, uh, they sequels, had something... so we could do that one day too. They had something very similar for the Dungeons and Dragons uh, movie poster, if memory serves. But you're right. So, w with all that in mind, I think it's um, the film's pretty good. It, it promises a sequel that, as we'll discuss next week, perhaps doesn't deliver on the uh, what's fun about the first film. Can I uh, comment on, on one other thing? Yeah. So so Goro, uh, who who again I do I do I do like uh, as a practical effect. Uh, so his 
all of his speaking lines are by the uh, voice actor Kevin Michael Richardson, who, oh, who no. he is all over Cartoon Network, and he's he's an awesome voice actor. But all of his grunting and growling and other vocal effects are Frank Welker, who also does the voice of the Emperor Shao Kahn at the end of this movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, Welker also does the voice of uh, Reptile, all the sort of animal noises. Yeah, he he gets three credits in this film. And, uh, you know, Welker has done so much in his career, he's perhaps best known as the voice of Megatron from the Transformers cartoons. I, I would posit that he's even better known as the voice of Freddy from Scooby-Doo. Uh, fair enough. But, but yeah, like if you and if you've ever heard an animal noise in a movie, there is a better than 80% chance you were hearing Frank Welker. Yep. Whenever Hollywood needs an animal to make a specific noise, they go to him. He also did the animal noises for the um, Curious George movie. Curious George. And, so, and like so, supposedly uh, his like party trick is you can name any two animals and he will make the sound of those two animals fighting. Oh, wow. That's, and it's yeah. like I think it's like one of the one of the Simpsons commentaries because he does the voice of Santa's little helper. They have a they had a thing where like you know one day he came in and he just did the sound of an elephant fighting a duck. It was hilarious. We couldn't <laughs> stop laughing. <laughs> we had to go for lunch. Oh, funny. Um, I'd love to hear that. So now let's do pitch a sequel. Uh, I think I will begin. All right. So given where this movie ends, you think it'll have to go into this part but instead it would be my movie would focus on um would just be called sonia be focusing on sonia blade and it would be a prequel about her and her partner she falls in love with her partner and her partner gets killed at the hands of kano and it would be more um, more gunplay than martial arts or the one point you find out her partner uh, secretly studies karate on the side and he teaches her a few things or two. Why and, would he uh, secretly study karate? Well, you know, being a police officer, you're supposed to focus on your firearm training. But he <laughs> he, 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 he stays up late, works on the side. You, you have a humorous scene where the two of them are having sex and she tries a move with her leg that almost chokes him to death. The same <laughs> move that ends up killing Kano in the first Mortal Kombat movie. You get um, cameos from some of the other female Mortal Kombat characters, like Melina. And um, I, I'm not sure how they would go into the plot. Probably something where Kano has dealings going on with the Outworld, uh, trying to set things up. And the movie ends with her getting an assignment, getting a tip that Kano uh, might be boarding this boat on the docks. So it sort of ends leading you into where she enters the first Mortal Kombat movie. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it's, it's interesting that you went with a prequel because that's what I wanted to pitch as well. Okay. Uh, I wanted to do, uh, I wanted to do Mortal Kombat first blood. Uh, which will reference the ending of this movie because, you know, they're all ready to defend the Earth from the Emperor Shao Kahn, who has apparently violated the laws of Mortal Kombat. Uh, but, you know, uh, Raiden says, before we fight, there's something you must know. And that's our bridge to the prequel. So we go back a thousand years 
to the first Mortal Kombat tournament on Earth, or maybe even more, maybe maybe to the first tournament that, that Shao Kahn was a part of that began the winning streak. But uh, in this prequel, uh, we learn about the first group of humans uh, to defend the Earth, but we also learn about the rise of Shao Kahn. This this will all be in service of teaching the fighters and the weakness that'll help them defeat him. But we also learn more about the emperor's uh, daughter, adopted daughter uh, Katana. We learn about uh, Queen Sindel, who would who would show up in Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Uh, so we get to see some of the more over the top fighters in this one, especially ones that we can sort of shoehorn uh, into a period context. We get to learn who Scorpion uh, and Sub Zero were before they became the masters of elemental power that we see in. In this film, uh, we've come to find out that they are actually martial artists from Earth who betray Earth to fight for Shao Kahn uh, in exchange for power. Uh, and this film, unfortunately, will end in tragedy uh, because, as we all as we all know, this would be the beginning of Earth's losing streak. So everyone's going to be killed. Uh, all of their souls uh, are going to be uh, absorbed uh, ab- absorbed uh, by the sorcerer <clears throat> and. In the end, though, now since the end of the first Mortal Kombat film, all those souls are released, we will flash back uh, to the present, and it was that soul who communicates the secret of Shao Kahn's weakness to Raiden and through him, the other Mortal Kombat fighters. Uh, And so we still won't see that final confrontation so that we can get a third movie out of this series. But that's going to be the arc for Mortal Kombat First Blood. Would it be followed by a sequel of Mortal Kombat Second Blood? Uh, I would say uh, Mortal, Mortal Kombat uh, Flawless Victory or Finishing oh, Move or something. Finishing Moves. That's what it is. Mortal Kombat Finishing Moves. Or Fatality. No, fuck it. Mortal Kombat Fatality. <laughs> okay. Which, hey, can I, can I, can I pick a nit? Uh, go ahead. Pick away. With one exception, they use the phrase Flawless Victory completely wrong in this film. They use it a few times. I remember that much. But but except for the first time, they're all wrong. You remember in the game, you get the flawless victory announcement if you defeat your opponent without without taking any damage. Uh, only in the first fight where that's used has the winner not taken any damage. All the other fights where they use the phrase flawless victory, there's been a real exchange of blows. I see. But it it makes it seem. It makes it seem uh, like Shang Tsung doesn't know the rules of Mortal Kombat whenever he says flawless victory. How odd. How odd indeed. Let's move on to what you're watching. Thrasher, what you're watching. All right, so uh, I watched a a few things uh, over the weekend, but the one that I really wanted to talk about uh, was I saw a, a film starring Bill Mosley called The Tortured, which was produced by the same people who made uh, the Saw films, but directed by uh, Robert Lieberman uh, and uh, written by uh, Merrick Possible. Was Bill Mosley from Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yes, and a number of other horror movies. Uh, okay. Robert Lieberman, however, is the director of D3, The Mighty Ducks, among other things. And, uh, and how is the movie that you saw? It's not good. It takes it takes torture porn to a whole other kind of un, unsavory uh, level. Because the, the, the premise of this movie is that there is a married couple uh, whose son is a, was abducted, uh, presumably molested, and then and then murdered uh, 
by uh, by Bill Mosley's character, uh, who is sentenced to uh, life in prison. Uh, however, one day he's being transferred uh, to a different prison facility, uh, and there's an accident on the highway. And so uh, the the married couple, uh, he's badly he's badly injured and crawling from the wreck. They just happen to spot him, so they abduct him, take him to this house in the woods, chain him up in the basement. And they're both doctors, so they they figure, well, we want revenge. We will torture him for as long as possible, but use our medical skills to keep him alive and conscious throughout the whole ordeal. So they just inflict various brutalities on him while trying to keep it secret that they have this criminal uh, in their house. But uh, because these kinds of movies have to have a bad twist ending, uh, in the end, it turns out he's not the guy who killed their son. He had an accomplice that was never caught, and the accomplice was the real murderer. That's kind of lame. It, it is, but the other the other thing that really that really upset me because they they do they do some horrible things to, to to Bill Mosley. It's one it's one of those things where you know by by all by all rights you know his character should be punished. His character was uh, was a part of a of a horrible crime, but they do such terrible things to him that you can't help but start to start to feel. Sorry for him. Uh, you know, you feel that the punishment's in excess. But there's this one scene where they just, with their bare hands, rip his rib cage open and start pulling out his intestines like ramen noodles. And it's awful. And you're like, well, how the hell are they going to keep him alive through this? Well, they don't. Turns out that's a dream. Ah. It just destroys, destroys the movie. Like if you're gonna, if you really want that gruesome scene, have the gruesome scene actually happen. Don't don't dilute it by declaring that it's just a dream sequence. Yeah, that's never satisfying, is it? Yeah, you you'd think people would have learned about dream sequences by now and what they are and are not good for, but apparently that is not the case. And I promise you, none of this episode has been a dream. Or has it? I watched a uh, an animated direct video movie. Uh, it's I think it's still on HBO in the United States. It's one that I've meant to see, although I've never um, read the comic it's based on. I'm talking about Batman: The Killing Joke. I've been meaning to watch that. How is it? So I can't. I mean, I, I find the the subject matter really disturbing and off putting. And I don't know if it's something I'd ever want to see a second time. It, if you like the cartoon, it's worth seeing for especially Mark Hamill's performance of the Joker. They bring back most of the cast of the animated series. Um, but I think my problem with it, with what I've read of the graphic novel, is the graphic novel is such a rich, detailed art style. And because these are low-budget, direct-to-video movies, they can't recreate that art style. So it looks huh. more anime-looking, I think. And it, it, it takes something away. Apparently, a lot of the shot setups are straight out of the comic. I think my favorite part is sort of the prequel flashbacks about the Joker before he became the Joker. Hmm. I think I think uh, those segments are, are interesting. It begins with all this unique content to the animated film, where Batgirl and Batman sort of go on an adventure um, to to kind of pad out their running time. even though the length is only 77 minutes. But but do you, do you think it, it's effective? Was it was it worth watching? 
eh. I mean, I for me the Joker stuff, yeah. Otherwise, I I would probably just seek out the graphic novel because I thought the artwork is really well done in that. From what I've flipped through with the book, I mean, you might as well see it, Thrasher, because you like the old cartoon, and and to get your point on it, I think would be interesting. I mean, sometimes these uh, direct-to-video animated uh, DC comic things can be good. I remember Superman. All-Star Superman was good. Uh, Batman Year One, which was sort of in black and white, uh, or desaturated, you know, looked pretty good. So it, it just depends, I think, on the subject matter. And when you're having just such a detail in the comic, I almost would have rather them have done a motion comic uh, approach. Hmm. As cheesy as that can look, but at least you preserve the original artwork detail. Also, interestingly, because of the uh, Alan Moore doesn't want to be credited in stuff based off his work, it has the odd credit based on Batman the Killing Joke, illustrated by Brian Boland. <laughs> but do- doesn't mention him at all. <laughs> no, the Watchmen movie did sort of the same thing. Um, yeah, that he's, he is an interesting fellow. Yeah. Um, oh, he is still alive. I wasn't sure if he was or not. Oh no no when he when he dies you'll hear about it possibly from his ghost. Right, I think he um Yeah, he does a lot of interesting things out there. It's a very curious character. And I wish you could hear his thoughts on the movies and stuff based off his work, but he has no interest in watching that stuff. Which I can I can kind of respect i do there there is a part of me that is attracted to his sort of sense of fatalism about adaptations of his of his work you know he he knows it's going to happen he has no interest in it so just cut him the check and shut up there is a part of me that hopes that one day as a writer i will be in that position i mean perhaps you know the this killing joke animated series is more not series animated cartoon is a more famous for its, you know, it got a critical drubbing when it came out, despite people wanting this in animated form for years and years and years. Uh, famously, at the Comic-Con screening, fans were asking uh, the writer why they sexualized the Batgirl character, to which uh, one of the writers, Brian Azzarello, replied, want to say that again, pussy? Hmm. So... There's that. You know, it, it, I can't get into why people don't like the Batgirl segments without spoiling stuff, but I, I, it would be interesting to hear your take on it once you watch it. I'll, I'll make that I'll make that my sequel assignment. I will check that out. Okay, great. Um, so now it's our last segment where we talk about what we've been working on. Thrasher. What you, you got any new uh, stuff coming out? Oh gosh, I have no no releases uh, in the near future. Uh, unfortunately, it might actually be it might actually be uh, regrettably two two months or so until the next book in the Oddity series uh, is out. But I will I will continue to hype uh, I will continue to hype uh, the other uh, the webcast that I do D Infinity Live, which you can find on d infinitynet It is myself. Uh, Michael Valhola, Clint Staples, Brendan Cass, and occasionally uh, a comics artist Amanda Call discussing uh, discussing things uh, from the world of tabletop gaming with a focus on role playing games. Uh, I am actually this is this is 
news. Uh, I am on the verge. Uh, I used to do an unboxing series for them called D Infinity Opens Up. Uh, I am ready to resume that series. So within about a week, I think of when this episode drops, the first of the new episodes uh, should be up, uh, and I will have more to follow shortly after that. So check that out on d-infinity.net. Um, not too long ago, I did an article for Games Radar recommending my 13 favorite backwards compatible titles for the Xbox One. Cool. So these are Xbox 360 games you can play on your Xbox One. And most of them are available uh, digitally with the exception of, I think, Mass Effect 2 or something like that. But um, it's sort of, I try to pick a wide variety of titles. It's, um, I think that's one of the cool things about that system is that you can play the older games on there. And yeah, so... Oh, I have to ask, have you gotten into Mass Effect Andromeda yet? Uh, I've played it briefly. My wife has completed it. Cool. The my, my uh, wife and I are on the verge of getting a new system, and we're prime and and that's one of the the games we'll probably pick up for it. I uh, was just wondering if you had any advice either way. I think um, what what she said about it is it seems to have be less story focused and more action focused. Hmm. And uh, system wise, between the Xbox One and the PS4, would you? have any strong recommendations or condemnations uh keep, keeping in mind we would probably use it primarily as a game system and not a multimedia platform i mean the exclusives can push you in one way or another depending but i don't know i mean like which of the older systems did you like more yeah of honestly the ps2 <laughs> um but but in the, in the past generation, I think I overall had more fun with the games I played on the 360 than I did on the PS3. Then go with the Xbox One, then. I mean, unless... Yeah, that's that's fine. I mean, the graphic difference... The, the stuff on PS4 looks a bit better, but it's it's not a huge difference for the most part nowadays. So, um... Yep, that's about it. Cool. And, yeah, let's see what else. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Again, you can listen to the show on Stitcher at Stitcher.com. Go to iTunes, leave us a good review. Um, Check us out on Facebook, uh, on Twitter at SequelCast2. Next time, we'll be doing Mortal Kombat Annihilation, which is directed by John Leonetti, who is the DP of Mortal Kombat. There's your connection there. For sequel cast two, this is Matt. And this and this is Thrasher. Saying Sequelcast two This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.